Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, welcome back, friends. And please do make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Leave us a review. We're looking for five stars, even if you dislike us. But uh, we'd love to um, we'd love to get those reviews in. And feel free to join the conversation. You can ask us questions on Twitter. Shadi and I are both out there, and you can uh, leave the hashtag #ZealotsPod. And you can also feel free to email us. Um, our email address is zealots at comment dot org. Um, as you all know, my name is Matthew Kamink. Uh, Shaddy and I are good friends, and uh, this is a place where we work out those questions of faith, politics, and culture. And while we are good friends, perhaps we shouldn't be. I'm a Christian. Shaddy's a Muslim. I study theology. He studies political science. And uh, yet here we are uh, working out these issues. And today we've got a particularly spicy one with a, a, a great guest. And so, yeah, Shadi, why don't you introduce our, our guest and our topic for the day? Yeah. So our guest is Christine Emba. She's a columnist at the Washington Post. She's also recently joined us on Wisdom of Crowds, the, the other podcast that I do as an editor at large. So we're happy to have her there. Uh, she's also the author of an incredible book. And, uh, you know, I mean that um, I read it last year and I still think about aspects of it. It's called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And it is indeed thought-provoking in any number of ways, and we'll get into some of that shortly. Well, I'm excited about this topic because it's a topic we haven't really addressed here on Zealots at the Gate up until now. Um, at some level, I guess we're going to talk about sex, but not not sex as sex, but sex as what it what it means for society, its implications for politics, um, what are Christian or Muslim approaches to sexual ethics. These are all things that we'll try to unpack. Um, you know, so I was just thinking a little bit before um, in preparation for this podcast, and there's a particular hadith that came to mind, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, which... I'd never really thought all that much about. It's one of those things you just hear it endlessly and you take it for granted. But um, the hadith is, uh, the prophet says, whoever marries has achieved half of his religion. And, well, I guess there's a couple questions there. Is that really meant to be taken literally? Because if so, I should be a bit worried. That definitely means I'm under 50%. Um, but... You know, obviously, some Muslims won't get married, but I think there's a broader and, and more important implication here beyond the kind of literal aspect, which is marriage is at the bedrock of religion, of specific religions, I should say. Um, and one way of looking at that is to say marriage makes the family possible and families make community possible. And if you have a lot of good communities um, in a particular geographical territory, presumably that'll filter its way up into structures of governance, perhaps, ideally. 
Another way of looking at it is to say that single men are basically dangerous if left to their own devices. So there's also a kind of security and stability argument here. Um, so maybe, Christine, just to start off, um, you know, your book isn't really a Christian book. Um, but when I was reading it, I couldn't help but think that your own religious background was figuring into your approach. Um, and I think it's, I think in some ways it's really difficult to talk about sex in America today, the sexual culture of our country and society without religion coming up in some fashion, because we are very divided. Um, you know, progressives tend to have a more, let's say, um, I'm not actually sure how to describe it, but a more um, open, flexible way of looking at sexual ethics. And then you have the more traditionalist approach. Um, but maybe just to start off, tell us about how much religion matters or how much you think it should matter when it comes to our discussions about sex and marriage and the family. Um, and maybe tell us a little bit about your own Christian background and how that informs your approach. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, about me, I can start there. Um, I grew up in a sort of non-denominationally evangelical Pentecostal um, family. Both of my parents are Nigerian immigrants and very devout. Um, and then in college, actually, my senior year of college, I converted to Catholicism. Um, and so I think both of those kind of faith traditions have had a strong impact on how I think about sex and also how I think about sex, but also sort of the larger question of morality and what it looks like to be ethically good and good to other people and like what sort of my idea of flourishing looks like, um, what we're aiming for when it comes to sex or marriage or kind of anything else about how we live our lives. But you're right, actually. I did not write, I mean, Rethinking Sex, I wasn't writing for a Christian audience in some sense. Um, because I wanted it to be a book that was legible, yes, to Christians, but also to, you know, many of my, you know, closest friends who are secular or not religious, but were still experiencing the sexual landscape as pretty awful and trying to figure out a better way to be. Um, and so I tried, and, you know, the other thing is that we live in a pluralistic society, right? You know, we live in America. And while I may be Christian and hold certain beliefs about sex, I can't necessarily impose those beliefs on other people. Um, but I mean, you could, I but... mean, well, <laughs> well, we don't live in a Christian integralist theocracy yet. Um, <laughs> but I think that the Christian faith, um, and religious traditions have long had a lot to say about healthy sexuality um, and healthy relationships. And there is wisdom there that can be um, translated across divides. And so I was, I think I was trying to do that with the book as well, to give not just Christians a resource, but to give everyone a resource. But yeah, I think if you, <laughs> if you, and if you know me or know anything about my background, I think you can kind of tell when I start sort of sneaking Thomas Aquinas into things that like, oh, okay, this is, this is a bit informed by her religious faith. But, you know, I think these questions of how to be good um, are questions that everyone is asking. So hopefully, you know, everyone can relate to the search. So Christine, for those, for those who have not read the book, um, it really is 
as you said, not a not a Christian book and written for Christians, but actually exploring our contemporary sexual culture and a set of what I would call hauntings or paradoxes within it. I'm wondering if you could give just a, a brief overview of the, I guess, the sort of haunting questions for the American sexual revolution that, that you jump after. It seems like um, the the promise of sexual liberty equality, consent, and consumption seems to be like the major sexual values of the current day. And you seem to be saying that um, this sexual revolution hasn't quite ended in this sort of sexual nirvana that we were hoping for. But could you talk us through just sort of the basic, the core questions or paradoxes that you're trying to get after? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. I mean, I wrote the book, I wrote Rethinking Sex kind of as I started thinking about the book and sort of sketching it out at the height of the Me Too moment. I found Me Too to be galvanizing. It showed that many of the problems we thought we had moved past um, because of the sexual revolution, because of the feminist movement, um, hadn't gone away. And in fact, we're still there. And I wanted to dig into sort of those questions questions and assumptions more deeply and take stock of where we stood now, what the landscape looked like now. Um, and in that sort of taking stock, I, I discovered, or I think uncovered what I have described in other interviews as kind of myths about sex and our sexual culture. Um, and I wanted to examine those and see if they held up um, or if they were in fact harming us rather than hurting us. And so I think there are a couple of them, um, and I have chapters that sort of address them in turn. But, you know, one was the idea that, I think this is a myth, that actually the best sex is sex with no feelings. Um, you know, this idea that like, oh, you don't want to catch feelings during sex. You don't want to be tied down by a relationship. Um, the idea that that was the healthiest attitude to have during sex. I wanted to challenge that myth. Um, you know, the myth that men and women are basically the same and experience sex in the same way. And so women can and should have sex like men. And that is sort of normal and natural. And I, I wanted to push back on that and say, you know, actually men and women are not the same. Um, they are, they're different in their approaches to sex and it is unhealthy to deny that. Um, you know, there's also the myth that sex doesn't mean anything you know, that it's just an activity like any other, like a handshake or, you know, like skiing, something fun that if you take the proper precautions, you know, it goes great and you don't have to think about it anymore. And I wanted to suggest that, in fact, sex is serious. Um, and then there are also kind of larger questions about, you know, whether all desire should be respected or rather that all desire should be accepted. Um, and I suggest that actually some desires are ethically worse than others and should not be indulged. Um, total freedom isn't necessarily the best goal to reach for. Um, and the idea that sex is, you know, totally private and whatever happens between two consenting adults is their business. No one has to worry about it. I suggest that no, actually, in some ways, sex is a public affair. What you do in private can spill out and have an impact um, in your day-to-day -day life in your relationships with other people, um, in the way that 
you know, our society is shaped overall. Um, and I get into sort of each of those myths, um, with different stories and in different chapters, but I think, I think those were the, the major ones. And I think actually above all, I think I wanted to challenge, and we've talked about this, um, elsewhere, Shadi, a sort of general myth that has pervaded our, our society, the myth of total autonomy, um, and individualism that I alone, you know, I, the individual matter the most, I need to get my needs met and fulfilled. And it doesn't matter what other people think. Uh, it doesn't matter what effect I have on other people. And I, I just challenged that idea. I think over and over again, um, that we should only be pursuing total and personal freedom. Um, I suggest that we all are bound to each other and we all owe each other something. It does seem like this book is particularly targeted at a, a section of Americana, which is sort of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are somewhat upwardly mobile, who are on dating apps, who are, you know, sort of very much within sort of the Boston to DC corridor, but you know, I'm broadly more urban, or as I like to call Shaddy, an urban elite. <laughs> the Acela corridor. Uh, I'm out here in the Midwest, you know. I'm with I'm with the real America out here in St. Louis. But there's it's um I think one of the things that comes up in the book and some of the interviews that I've seen with you is this sense of there are whispers amongst this progressive um, sexual culture that everything isn't going quite as we thought it would. Um, this, this liberty hasn't quite brought the happiness and fulfillment and the provocation is maybe this isn't working. And some of your reviewers seems to seem very uncomfortable with this of that, that it's not working. Um, but it's, it's very interesting to me how so many throughout your book, you have these anecdotes of these quiet conversations that like, this isn't quite working out. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about why it is that it's whispered that this isn't working and what's going and, on there. And, and maybe just for my benefit, cause I haven't read a lot of the reviews um, or the negative ones. Um, but what, like maybe Matt, what was your sense of what the major criticisms are of what Christina set up until now, because at least to me, it all sounds quite reasonable. And even if people disagree, it doesn't feel like it should be seen as an attack on, you know, the alternative, but what, what's going on there, would you say? And why people maybe have some of that instinctive reaction? I want to give Christina a chance to, the, the expert a chance to, to speak on this first, before I show my cards. Like I would love, I'd love her to think about like, yeah, what are they pushing back against? What's really going on? And and why are they whispering about it rather than saying it out loud that, that this like total liberation of sex, total commodification, the ability to, to exchange and quickly move on from partner to partner, that it's not working. I'm I'm just I'd love I'd love Christine to try first at what's going on here. Yeah, well, <laughs> so a couple thoughts I had while listening to both of your questions. Um, you know, one of the second chapter in the book is actually titled, We're Liberated, But We're Miserable. Um, and I think you hit, you know, that point on the head in your description of, you know, people just being 
surprisingly dissatisfied by kind of getting what they thought they wanted from the sexual revolution. Um, and I'll also point out that, you know, I did interview a lot of sort of upwardly mobile um, urban professionals, but I was actually out in the Midwest just last week <laughs> um, uh, talking to college students about about the book um, in St. Louis and in, you know, like Fargo, North Dakota. And I think these questions are, these are the questions that are facing young people um, kind of anywhere that young people gather right now, actually, to differing degrees. Um, but yeah, so to the question of why people are whispering, um, you know, one of the one of the first things I say in the book, um, and what part of what I wanted the book to be was a kind of reassurance. Um, you know, I say, you're not crazy, reader. That thing that you think is wrong is wrong. You know, you're not nuts. You're not the only person who feels that the vibes are very off. They they are off. Um, and when I talk to women especially, um, there was sometimes a sense of almost guilt that they weren't enjoying the scene because they they had um inherited what I think is actually a, a sort of twisted definition of feminism. Um, an inaccurate definition of feminism um, that suggested that to be a good feminist or to be a good like modern person, to be like a real, you know, liberal urban city dweller, like you should be having casual sex. You should be like having all of these crazy times. You should be enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying it, you're repressed or you're like secretly conservative or there's something wrong with you, not the scene. And so I think that's why it was kind of these questions have kind of been whispered because like nobody wants to out themselves as like, oh, the like the lame prude in the group or like the bad feminist. Um, and so they just kind of keep it to themselves and think that they're the problem, um, not that the broader, broader world is the problem. Yeah. I'll follow up on one other thing. The language of the marketplace and economics actually shows up a lot in your book. Um, speaking about sexual competition and sexual products. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk to us just a little bit about how you see American sexual culture being, being commodified and bodies being commodified and, and um, how economic categories can help us understand what's happening. You're right. The idea of the market comes up a lot. And I talk a lot in the book about how in many ways, I think the the tools that we use to go about dating and relationships now, you know, dating apps and websites um, are sort of explicitly set up to, to encourage the commodification of people. You know, like Tinder um, was originally conceived as it was supposed to look like a deck of cards that you can just kind of swipe through and pick who you like and discard who you don't like. And that you just have to make yourself kind of a marketable, wantable product. Um, to succeed um, on an app like that. And by succeed, I mean like get picked and, you know, go on dates. Um, and I think that dating apps, but also kind of the way that sex is, has been talked about um, and portrayed in media, especially the media that like younger people grew up on, like whether it's Sex in the City or those kind of... Um, frat bro-esque comedies that were, you know, huge in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, sex was treated like something you got from someone else, 
like you were getting something, a good product, or someone was giving something up. Um, and so there was sort of a push to think of, of sex, of the other person as something that you get or you trade up or you get a better model or something. Um, and I think that's a really unhealthy way to think about sex and to think about relationships. But in some ways, because America is just such a, a capitalist society, such a market-based society, um, that sort of, that mindset leaks into almost every facet of our lives, including our relationships. So on this question of autonomy, which I think is really at the heart of this discussion, um, you know, there, there is this idea that if we feel something, it must be true, that we have to follow our heart's desires um, and live our truth and things that now sound kind of silly, although I guess people still say it unironically. What do I know? But that kind of rhetoric is, is you know, part of what we grew up with um, and have experienced. And I think there's it's worth asking, do we have immediate access to our own desires? Can we really trust ourselves to know what we want at a deeper level? And I think this gets to the role of religion here, because I think at, at some basic level, religion, or at least the Abrahamic faiths to various degrees, tell us that we can't trust what seem to be our own desires, that we have to look at our own desires with a certain kind of skepticism, that um, the self um, can be deceiving. And it brought to mind um, a verse in the Quran that I, I tend to hear a lot. It's actually the verse that that people will cite to you if you're going through something bad in your life or a, it's the classic like post breakup verse. Uh, <laughs> um, it's verse two, 216, I think. It says that it is possible that you dislike a thing which is good for you and that you love a thing which is bad for you. Pretty pretty obvious and it's something that we I think we intuitively know that you know, be careful what you wish for, because you might actually get it. But as obvious as it might seem to us, the three of us, I think it really does go against some of the core presumptions of our pro-autonomy culture, which is about following what you feel. And I'm I, so, Christy, I'm, I'm just wondering how central do you think this is? And if that's really at the heart of this, that does seem to be a pretty fundamental divide. Because if you don't have religion, if you don't have something that tells you to submit to an authority that is higher than you, who else can you trust but yourself? Whose feelings, you should trust your own feelings if that's all you have, if you are the primary unit of society. And it does worry me because if there isn't a way to resolve that, or if there isn't a way to encourage non-religious folks to see it in this way, then you're pretty much stuck. Yeah, if I could just jump in on on top of that, because my I had a comment later on that was very much related to this, is this sense as I was reading the book, thinking about um, how freedom that we have today, the freedom to create and make our own sexual identity, to create and make our own sexual ethic, and to create and make our own sexual practice, uh, and to to share that with others and to brand it. And, um, 
and there's there's can be something very liberating about that there can also be something very exhausting about that in that we have to make it up as we go whereas you know traditionally religions have provided us with a sexual identity have given us a sexual ethic have have given us you know certain boundaries within which we can play um and there is there is a little bit of an exhaustion to this and i think one of the things that I heard you, you tell the story of this woman. It's a, it's a disturbing story who comes up to you at a party and she says, you know, I was having sex with this man and he started to choke me and she didn't know what to do with that. And, um, she knew she didn't like it, but she felt like she, she kind of had to go along with it or she felt guilty about judging him or saying no. And, um, but really all of the pressure was on her to deal with this problem. There was no sort of larger cultural set of, uh, rules or systems beyond just consent. And so it puts a lot of weight on her to say, these are all the things that are okay for me. These are all the things that are not okay for me. This is my sexual identity. This is my ethic. This is my practice. And, um, I guess Shadi and I are both kind of wrestling with these questions of personal f of freedom and constraint around sexual identity. And I think the word that comes to me is exhaustion mm -hmm. that when people are whispering to one another, it's sort of this, I'm exhausted. This feels brutal. This feels dehumanizing. This feels like a meat grinder. Um, anyway. So yeah. Any reflections on that? Yeah, no, I think both of you are making great points here. And <laughs> I love the idea of like the breakup verse. Um, I, I feel like there are a lot of breakup verses in the Bible, perhaps too many. One might think, um, thinking about how many, like my, my mom has told me after a breakup, I'm like, please stop telling me that it's not helpful. Um, but the verse that came to mind is God has a plan for you. It's okay, sweetie. Well, stop I crying. I don't like the plan. <laughs> um, you know, but the heart is deceitful among above all things. Who can, who can know it? Um, and I think that's, that's really true, actually. That seems to come up a lot. I guess to Shadi's point, I think that, and I write about this in the book, um, the 20th and 21st century, there was kind of a, a drift towards a sort of Freudian view of the self, um, in which repression was like the worst possible thing. And if you like repressed your feelings or repressed any desire that you had, um, it would sort of like curdle within you. And so to be sort of a healthy, self-actualized person, that meant expressing your desires and pursuing them um, and seeing them through whatever your desire happened to be. And Freud was wrong about a lot of things, um, <laughs> including this one, I think. But the idea that like, um, it's dangerous to repress any part of yourself. Um, it's still kind of a, it's like one of the leading laws of our, our current sexual culture. Um, and that often means that like, you know, you have a sort of out there desire. Um, you know, you shouldn't be judged for that desire, actually. In fact, you should just find a way to, a healthy way to pursue it with consent. Uh, and that, that will actually be good for you. Um, and I suggest, you know, in the book that actually there are some desires that you might have that just you don't need to pursue, actually. Um, it would be better, in fact, if you if you didn't pursue them. Um, 
And I think we we see the evidence of that um, in some of the stories that we hear about, like women being sort of victimized by men and also, you know, men being victimized by people whose desires are are really extreme and they kind of can bully someone into participating, but it's not good for them. The exhaustion of creating your own yes. ethic. Yeah. The exhaustion of creating your own ethic. Yeah. I think that this was a question that, you know, I wrestled with in a lot of different circumstances in writing this book. Um, and I think that exhaustion is a thing that's happening. Um, so I use, I spoke to the ethicist, um, Fanny Bialik, she's at Washington University, and she gave me sort of a great metaphor for this problem of the dinner party. You know, one of the reasons why people enjoy dinner parties is because you, you kind of know what you're getting into, but there's like enough space that exciting things could happen but you know, like nothing terrible is going to happen. Like there's space, you know, you know, you're going to go there, you're going to eat food, you're going to use a knife and fork. You might get to talk to interesting people. Uh, the food might be different from what you expected, but you can feel pretty safe in knowing that like nobody's going to suddenly stab you in the heart with a knife because that's not what you do at dinner parties. And so that sort of sense of knowing what the norms are makes it possible for you to have enjoyment in that setting. And she contrasted that to our sexual landscape, um, which suddenly seems like a dinner party with no rules or no norms at all. Um, like anything could happen, you know, when you go into an encounter with someone. Like it could be really nice. Maybe they'll kiss you, but maybe they'll also like strangle you um, while you're having sex. And that's really frightening, actually. And so there's always like a, a little bit of a sense of like, oh, I don't, I don't really know what I'm getting into. Like, I'm a little bit worried. I don't know where this is going because there are no guardrails. There are like no rules to depend on. Um, and that is exhausting, like kind of constantly having to rebuild, um, sort of the sexual landscape for yourself in every encounter is a lot of work, frankly. And that, and that leads to another paradox that I think you point out that sex is more available. It's more free. It's more accessible via technology than it's ever been before. And yet we read stories about the sexual recession that we're actually having less sex now. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be, or what are your sort of leading theories on, on why we're having less sex? Yeah. Well, I mean, actually I'll, I'll go back to the, this, um, open landscape metaphor, uh, a little bit more. Um, I think that this idea of like there being no norms and sort of no guardrails and that being exhausting, I think is actually particularly exhausting um, for women and young people in some sense. Like when there were stronger cultural norms or religious norms around sex, um, it was easier to say no in some ways to something that you didn't want because like there was kind of an easy fallback excuse like no I don't want to have sex because I might get pregnant sorry I don't want to do it but like 
that's not really it's it's felt that like you know there's contraception now so that's not really an option or right or say, my parents will get mad at me or the town what will the town think <laughs> exactly. or whatever like there's there's a variety of other people yeah. you can blame <laughs> i don't want to have sex because i'm religious or god yeah. you said god doesn't yeah. want me god to. will get yeah. mad at me like there's other people you can point to to say no it's not all on you and your personal preference right. i guess and it is actually yeah. i think a big ask um to you know, ask a young, a younger person, especially to be sort of fully on top of, you know, their desire and able to speak up in every circumstance and sort of recreate um, guardrails for themselves in every instance, like that can be really hard. And I think that's, that's part of what we're seeing. Um, and I do think that that sort of, that does lead to kind of a sex recession in a sense, because if the idea of having sex has begun to feel really fraught um and like potentially unpleasant like you're you're always like walking into a situation you like don't know what's gonna happen but like if it's anything like last time it's gonna be crazy and uncomfortable like why would you do that um it makes more sense to just kind of like sit it out but unfortunately that also means people are not getting into relationships and they don't end up forming the families that they really want um and they end up lonely. And I think there's also, to, just to kind of uh, use the capitalism metaphor, you know, in a cap, in a free economic marketplace, um, there are the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the benefits accrue to an elite at the top of the pyramid. And then, you know, other people don't get as much. And then you have a real gap. And I, there's a number of studies to this effect that... The people who are most successful on dating apps, it's it's um it's a relatively small percentage of of you know men, and then there's then there's then there's the people who don't seem to really um, get a lot of matches and that sort of thing, and you create these gaps between people who are participating in the sexual marketplace, and some of them decide to withdraw um, entirely or give up and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, I, I want to just maybe push on the point about what to do about autonomy and desire, because it seems to me that religion is the only way to it's the only thing that allows people to move beyond themselves. Other I mean, you could just decide to move beyond yourself, but I don't know if that's going to be very effective on a mass scale. And I, I want to just push you, Christine, a little bit to kind of see how how willing you are to center religion or christianity in this do people need christianity or whatever else minority religion in america to actually move beyond their own desires and find a way to constrain themselves huh so i don't think that one has to be a practicing religious person um to be good to behave in a moral and ethical manner. Um, I think there are lots of, you know, secular people who are trying to do the right thing and trying to care about other people. Um, I do think though that the sort of religious framework helps to give, give people a reason for behaving well um, and a reason why they should do something that's hard instead of taking the easy way out. Um, 
I think it can help give that action much more of a grounding force and support. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as we, you know, we, we look at the statistics about how America is becoming more secular and religion is, is losing its cultural power in a variety of different sectors of common life. It, it's sort of a hanging question of, um, how will secular culture, um, contribute to more healthy patterns of sex mm -hmm. that, that contribute towards, uh, the sort of self-giving, generosity and, and there's a word that hasn't come up in this discussion that i would just want to note the word sin i don't think we've mentioned it up until now because it's not just it's not just a question of aspiring towards good ethics or a better way of being there's also the punitive aspect which you know we don't love to talk about in terms of religion as much anymore but it used to be quite central and i would say in islam it still is um central when talking about sex that one of the major you know one of the major sins in islam is what's called zina which you know is extramarital sex um and there are distinctions between premarital um premarital and then um and then you know fornication or adultery um obviously one's worse than the other there but you know generally there is there are these admonitions towards believers that um if they pursue these activities, there are going to be consequences. There are going to be um, potential punishment or a heavy accumulation of bad deeds. And I, obviously in the Christian context, Matt and I have talked about how sin in the Christian imagination is just really fundamentally different in some ways. But I'd be curious if either of you have reflections on where the role that sin plays in Christian sexual ethics. I think one of the underlying ways in which not just Christianity, but kind of any religious tradition um, is actually has been really helpful and important in trying to set up sort of our, our ground rules um, and guardrails around things like sex is that they are moral traditions um, and they sort of give an explanation for why some desires are worse than others. Um, or why you should treat people a certain way. Um, you know, the idea that every human person has dignity and is made in the image of God, if you believe that, then like, oh, it does make sense that I shouldn't treat other humans badly because I am disrespecting that fact. Um, and the path is like pretty tight and clear there. And I do think that it's harder um, to come up with a justification for why you should do one thing and not the other if you don't have kind of the backdrop beliefs that religion can give you in that sense, you know, that there is a good and a bad, that humans are a certain kind of thing, that sex, say, actually has a certain telos um, and, like, there is a specific good associated with sex. And I think, like, in a secular context, like people kind of try and backfill that or work to backfill that and sometimes end up in similar conclusions um, as sort of the religious conclusions. But, you know, it, it would be easier, I think, to just start from start from those basics and work your way forward. Um, so I think you are onto something there. And what about sin, Christine? Tell us about sin. What about sin? Um, yeah, I mean, well, 
again, that's like sort of a moral, a moral concept, right? Like to be able to say like, some things are bad. Um, some things are sinful and that's why you shouldn't do them. Um, is like a real justification that I think religious people kind of have and understand. Um, and that it, it's harder to work your way back to if you are, if you're not religious. Yeah, I think uh, two things on this. One, one is I feel like we're kind of bumping up against um, uh, an unhelpful set of categories around what is religious and what is secular um, mm. in that sort of an assumption that Islam and Christianity have sexual ethics and the modern secular world is just neutral. Has nothing. <laughs> you know, the modern secular world has sexual ethics. It has taboos. It has rules. It has expectations. It's not as if, um, you know, the sexual revolution just brought about total moral emptiness. It, it, it has a telos. It has a set of like, here's the picture of a flourishing, you know, sexual being. And, and this is what it looks like. It also has guilt. So this woman who, you know, sort of guiltily, you know, shared her, disappointment about her sexual life. She's dealing with guilt. And so, um, the, the word sin, and that brings us to this word sin. Um, I experience, I think many, um, non-Christians look at this word sin, uh, or evil as this thing that inspires guilt or makes one feel bad about oneself. Um, but from inside the Christian moral imagination, um, I experience it as incredibly liberating in that the language of sin helps me understand why I feel bad right now. Why do I feel guilty? And then I'm provided with a way to deal with that guilt, a way to hand that guilt over, a way to process that. Where this particular woman who was feeling guilty about her sexual relationship, she didn't know what to do with that feeling of guilt and she didn't know how to name it or process it or or be unburdened. Um, and so for Christians, the language of sin helps us say, okay, here's why um, I'm feeling this way. Here's why this practice that I've been engaged in, whether it being lying or stealing or hitting people or whatever, here's why it's not making them happy or me. <laughs> and then um, for Christians, the ability to unburden that by, by handing that over to Jesus and, and experiencing uh, a reconciliation and a repentance um, and a restoration um, is sort of this ancient Christian process of, of healing, of, of naming pain, <laughs> naming disruption, saying, you know, it shouldn't be this way. Um, and I think what part of Christine's gift in this book is just like what she said, you're not crazy. If you feel like this sexual marketplace is unfulfilling, is frustrating, is um, dehumanizing, is a meat grinder, you know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And ultimately a Christian doctrine of evil is that, is sort of saying the way that we experience life right now is not the way it's supposed to be. We were created for something more. Mm -hmm. And so it helps you know that you're not crazy. I guess that's how I'd, I'd enter into that. But Christine, my Catholic sister, <laughs> you can feel free to edit that. If you no, like. I mean, I think that's really right. Um, one of the 
things that I talk about in the book a lot is the question of consent um, and how consent has kind of been set up as the the only working ethic that we have around sex. Um, and the idea that like, if two people have consented to something, if they like both come to this kind of like handshake agreement that we're, that nothing that they do is wrong as long as they've agreed to it. And I suggest that consent is actually too impoverished to be an ethic because it's, it's a legalism. It's a transactionalism. Um, it doesn't actually, there's no content to consent in a sense. Um, you know, you're, you're agreeing to something and that's like a transaction. Um, but it doesn't say anything or have anything to say to the thing that you're agreeing to, whether that thing is good or bad or what effect it will have on you. It doesn't ask you to sort of think about, you know, where the other person is or like what the other person's sort of personhood is like, um, or what kind of the, what is the ethical valence of the thing that you have agreed to do? Um, it stops short of asking those moral questions and giving space to suggest that, oh, maybe something is sinful or maybe something is bad or maybe something is good. Um, it sort of prevents you from making those distinctions because it stops too soon. And so if you only have consent as sort of the marker of whether things are good or bad, um, there is a sensation, and I talk to a lot of young women, especially who felt this, you know, they might've consented to something and then it happened and they like, it felt bad to them or it felt immoral or they, they didn't like it, but they felt like they had no grounds for complaint in a sense, because like, well, consent was given. I can't judge anything past that. I'm not allowed to. Um, and so they kind of take that feeling of sort of guilt or hurt into themselves. And it's just like, well, I did something wrong. It's, it's my fault. Um, I didn't ask enough questions or something. Yeah. And that leads us to like the, the sort of closing of your book, which is, is arguing for, uh, yeah, well, I think what I, I termed it as like a sexual hospitality, a concern for the other, um, a desire to, to, for a, a covenantal experience, I think what I would, I would argue. Yeah. I think that was what you're hinting at or, or haunting at is is core to the sec the Christian sexual ethic. Now, you know, in my own space of Protestantism, you know, you have sort of um, more right wing Christians and left wing Christians. The more right wing ones will speak of sexual ethics in terms of a list of don'ts, uh, a list of things that you shouldn't do, um, or a list of sins. Uh, and those on the left will, you know, sort of bless human sexual desires, affirm them and, um, and encourage you to, to self-actualize that the, the glory of God is, is a human person fully sexually alive. So, um, but it seems to me that a core sec to the Christian sexual ethic is that of love of caritas, that, that, that self-giving. And that's what I see you, you hinting at there. And I, and I really appreciate that. So that, that part of it's not so much a question as a thank you. And so it leads me to this question about how you show up as a Christian in public life, which is sort of a core question of this podcast. Um, 
And the voice that you chose for this book and that you often choose in your public presentations is one of, uh, you're, you're quite subtle with your Christian faith um, in, in the book itself uh, and in public life. And your Christian faith, I would say it sort of, it sort of haunts throughout the book in this sort of question of, is this sexual ethic working out for you? Maybe we need some constraints. Perhaps there are some sexual desires that are bad. Um, and in some reviews from Christians that I've read, they have criticized you for not being more explicit about your Christian faith, more laying it down. Here's what the Bible says, you know, come to the, come to Rome, <laughs> um, convert and be well. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, there's this yearning for you to be more explicit, more direct. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the choice that you've made, not only in this book, but in your, in your career as a, as a columnist for the Washington post, um, to be a bit more subtle, a bit more haunting, a bit more curious. Um, tell, tell us just a little bit about that choice for you. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you asked this a little bit earlier in the podcast, what have, or maybe Shadi asked this, like what critics have said. And, but yeah, that's actually it. I was kind of surprised um, that some of, I think my most negative reviews, um, there weren't many, I will say that, <laughs> um, were from, you know, Christian publications who were like, why doesn't she just, you know, like come out and state the biblical ethic of, of marriage? Um, and my response to those critics are sort of like, you know, it's, I'm not writing just for you, actually. Um, I want to reach a broader audience who needs to hear this. And like, that is not necessarily the most helpful approach. So I guess in this book, but also in the way that I, I write about a lot of topics um, and how I think sort of my faith and like the values that I, like the things that I value, um, the way that I live my life based on faith um, can be seen in my work. I think I often use the term translation um, and I think of it as sort of a, a mode of translation. Um, how can I sort of ask questions and make legible, um, sort of the commitments of my faith and, you know, the way that my faith sort of shapes my values? How can I make that legible to someone who's not inside my faith? Um, and like not turn them off, but sort of like slowly bring them in. You know, uh, a Christian sexual ethic, you know, I think I have one, but you know, saying to somebody who's not Christian, well, um, don't have sex because Jesus, you believe that, right? They don't believe that. <laughs> um, so how do I sort of explain like a Christian sexual ethic and what's behind it? What do we mean by the human person? What is a convincing way to talk about dignity and like, you know, translate that into something that makes sense in a secular context so that other people can understand it. Um, I think that's what I am trying to do throughout the book. And I think what I spend a lot of my, my other writing doing actually. I wonder what's, what do you enjoy about that challenge of translating and what's hard, like what's not working? <laughs> I mean, the first and kind of maybe most obvious thing is that um, I like being able to, to share 
sort of my faith and beliefs with other people who may not, you know, agree with some tenets of Christianity, but who I can get to <clears throat> appreciate, you know, something like Catholic social teaching or even a Christian sexual ethic and like seeing that make sense to them um, brings me a lot of joy and being able to then like have conversations like this, not just in a religious environment, but with anyone, you know, I, I find that beautiful and also fun. Um, and also it kind of forces me to look hard at my own faith and not necessarily like take my beliefs or belief system for granted, because like, if I'm going to try and translate this and explain it to someone else, I have to understand it first. Um, so like if I'm trying to explain what a Christian sexual ethic is, that means that I have to, I have to go learn what a Christian sexual ethic is and not just sort of like take it for granted that like, this is what we do. I don't really know why, but we're just doing it. But like it pushes me to kind of go a bit deeper. And I think that's been really healthy. Um, what don't I enjoy about it? Sometimes the process of translation can be tedious, um, I guess. And I can be like, why don't you get this obvious thing? Like, why don't you agree with me? Um, and people just, just don't agree and it doesn't work. Um, and sometimes I find it frustrating and kind of saddening um, to sort of like try and explain why like a Christian worldview on something makes sense. Um, but then there are so many people who identify as Christian or who call themselves Christian in public who are doing like the exact opposite um, of what, what our faith demands. And then I'm asked to like speak for those people. And I'm like, I, we're letting the side down. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's unpleasant. It's embarrassing, and it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, and you know, as we as we begin to close, I do want to shift a little bit to some broader political implications, which we've touched on here and there. But um, you know, in previous episodes of season two of Zealots at the Gate, we've talked about how prayer is political, how fasting is even political, and. Obviously, there's a risk of saying that everything is political. Um, the personal is political is a phrase that people will will often hear. Um, but but ultimately, questions around marriage in particular, um, and you know, sex is. We've talked a lot about sex, but we've talked a little bit less about the institution of marriage and that what that means for society writ large. But obviously, with concerns around population decline, low fertility rates, um, you know, the kind of standard concerns around the breakdown of the family and the fact that people aren't even having families in the first place. And, you know, Christine, you and I have talked in, in other circumstances about the anti-natalist movement, like people who just don't believe that we should be having kids because the world is falling apart because of climate change and they don't want to inflict harm on the unborn, if you will. Um, so all of this is much bigger than people's own autonomy or lack thereof or what constraints they introduce in their own kind of sexual activity. It's in some ways, not to be too overwrought here, but it is about the future of civilization. And that's, all, and that's you know, why, um, you know, Christians and Muslims 
in, as kind of um, creators of empires in the pre-modern period of of groups that have fashioned v very successful civilizations did see the question of marriage and family as central because they understood that to be to be a successful civilization you really had to have something to say and it had to be important so uh, you know i don't know where i'm going with all that just to say that um well how do we save civilization i guess but um how how pol like how political is this to you cuz christine you don't seem you know, uh, you know, we're friends, and I don't get the sense that you see yourself as a particularly political person. But what you write about seems to have profound political implications. <laughs> how do we, how do we save the future of civilization? Thanks for saving the easy question for the end. <laughs> that was that was good of you. <laughs> you know, I feel like one thing that sort of that echoes throughout the book is like the idea that sort of like think of the joker in your head now, like we live in a society, right? Like our actions are not just our own. What we do affects other people. Um, and I, I'm just always like pushing people to be aware of that and to think about that. Um, how are these questions political? I mean, it's a political question if you, whether you think that marriage is valuable or not, because that will there are like political implications, the legislation that you would pass to, you know, support marriage and family or the legislation that you won't pass because you don't think it's important. Um, you know, there are arguments about sort of fertility rates and like whether we should be having more or fewer children, like the political implications of that are exactly what, what you say. Um, you know, the political implications of what our sexual culture looks like, they show up in, you know, the sorts of people that we elect, the sort of behavior that we tolerate or encourage. Um, the personal is is very politi political, um, especially in, I think, the space of reproduction, sex and family life. Like sex and marriage are like the ways in which we continue to produce society, you know, make sure our society continues. So of course they're political questions. Um, I don't, I think that it's not always like healthy to put everything into like a directly political stance, I guess, because that is just not how people sort of live their lives. Like when you're asking someone out on a date, you're not thinking about like, oh, what are the implications? What are the political implications of me taking this girl out for a drink? Speak right? for yourself, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not you, Shadi. The future of humanity depends upon us <laughs> consummating this this relationship, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Don't say that. That's, that's a pickup line that'll Say that work. for at least the third date, you know. <laughs> I don't think that every that the political has to be at the forefront of every question, Um but every, all of these, I don't know, all of these questions are, are political. I mean, just, just to hop in here, I think there's, there's a number of theologians who've argued that um, the family, that having children is fundamentally an act of hope. Uh, it it hmm. has a, a telos, mm -hmm. a belief in the future. And when a, when a culture loses hope, when it loses a, a deep belief in the future, um, families and, and children um, you know, th that sort of shows up. Um, and I think 
there there's something to be connected to that to our our sort of sexual recession that has happened um as well so i think that there is a, a search for i would say sexual hope hmm. and it leads me to this like deeper question i've been asking as i read your book christine about is sex too important to americans or not important enough and how you think about that is are we too obsessed with sex do we do we expect too much from it or not enough how do you think about that i think we both care too much and too little about sex actually um you know on the on the caring too much side i think that this is a flaw in both sort of religious and non-religious circles this idea that you know to be a fully realized human adult you ought to be having sex and not just sex but like the best sex of all time like you've got to be out there doing it and if you're not doing it like something's wrong with you and even in some ways like in a uh, a mindset that i've unfortunately seen in christian circles um where like space is not necessarily made for single people and it's kind of like well if you're married once you're married then you are a real member of the community and you're having sex and it's blessed and it's awesome but until then like we don't really have anything to say to you um that like kind of really overweights the importance of sex also the idea um and you know i think some spaces that like some religious space that like if you do one thing wrong in sex like if you if you fornicate one time like you're going to hell um i think that puts like a little bit too much weight um on a thing that isn't like actually necessarily the most important thing um in life or in your relationship to god on the other hand um do people take it unseriously yeah there's this idea like you know i was mentioning before this idea like sex means nothing right it's just like a hug that lasts extra long, like it doesn't have any content, there's no talos um, to it, is sort of downplaying the importance of what sex actually is, which is something serious and in fact sacred and meaningful. You said, Christine, that fornication isn't the most important thing in the world, but it is pretty important in the context of a marriage, which is why oftentimes marriages will fall apart when um, a spouse, uh, cheats. And, and so I'm just curious what, what you meant by that. Um, cause I mean, there's also a risk of going in the other direction. If, if no particular act is decisive, then it could have the risk of giving people a green light or a yellow light. Cause they might say, well, it isn't the most important thing in the world. God will forgive me. This is just a, one moment of weakness. Um, and maybe this is, you know, directing us in a little bit of a different direction, but, um, can you just maybe say more about how you would view like the role of fornication in the context of marriage and to what extent people should, um, actually feel really strongly about it versus having, I don't know if you were suggesting a more kind of forgiving approach, but of course, forgiveness is part of, um, our respective traditions in some fashion. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what I was saying um, is that, you know, there are, there are a lot of sins. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that people should be doing that they don't um, or do that they shouldn't. And elevating sex and like questions of sex, like the most important, like this is the most important thing 
um, to focus on means that you can leave a lot of other things by the wayside. You know, uh, a church that, you know, only cares about sort of sexual sin in its members, but isn't actually, doesn't really care about how we treat the poor, um, you know, how we care for children. Like, are we supporting the widow and the orphan? They're just like caught up in only thinking about sex. Like that's, that's a problem, unfortunately. That's overweighting sex to the detriment of the many other things that a faithful person or community should should care about. Makes sense. I think you were also hearing sort of this, uh, this I find a lovely paradox within the Christian sexual ethic. We're hearing it from Christine in that um, you do want to take your partner seriously as someone who is made in the image of God, who is deeply valuable as someone for whom God would give anything for. Um, and you want to hold that, uh, that person as valuable and that act as valuable. And yet also a Christian sexual ethic should involve a lightheartedness, a playfulness, a joy. You know, we Christians will say, I, I have freedom in Christ. I have free. Jesus has set me free. And that has implications for how Christians should approach sex in that it is, it is right and good for there be, for there to be a playfulness to sex. And so you have those two things going on at once in a Christian sexual ethic, this sense of, um, this person, my partner matters, my marriage matters, and the sexual act is meaningful. It has purpose and value. And so it has weight to it. And yet also I've been created to play and have delight and joy. And, um, and I would argue that a, a healthy Christian sexual ethic is able to do both of those things. So you're not so serious about sex, right? It's like, um, this, this, this heavy weighty thing. Um, but you also in Jesus, you, you are made human again to, to be, and part of being human is sexual delight and play and a sort of lightheartedness that sin and guilt kind of weighs us down. And so we ought to have both of those things. And I see within, um, you know, and I, I, you know, Christine, maybe you can help me think about this, but I see within uh, secular progressive sexual ethics, a desire for both of those things. We want to take um, women seriously and their, their, um, their value and their bodies and their agency and their, their rights not to be abused and assaulted. We want to take that seriously. We also really want sex to be fun. <laughs> and we don't know how to hold those things together in a sort of progressive secular culture. And it, and I personally find the Christian sexual ethic helps me hold those things together. But I, I kind of hear my, my secular neighbors wrestling with that. I, and I don't know if you, if you hear that as well. Yeah. I mean, just if sex means everything, um, then there's like constant pressure to be, having it and getting it right each time. Um, and like living up to some expectation that is like high, but sort of unclear. Um, and if sex means nothing, um, then that is often an excuse that people can use to like treat people badly because it's like just another act. It doesn't really matter that much. And I just think, I think that neither extreme is true. 
And I mean, Shadi, you asked about sort of like fornication in a marriage and like, yeah, that is important. But I think like the example, an example I would use there is that like, is it a healthy marriage if like you only think about your sex lives and like you make sure that your sex life is really good, but like you're not paying attention to your finances, you have kids and you ignore them, like you don't know where you're going to, if you can pay the rent next month, like you haven't decided where to live, um, but the sex is good. Like that's not actually an ideal marriage. An ideal marriage is one in which like that is a very important part of your relationship, but there are also like many other aspects of the relationship that are important too. And you don't only focus on one to the detriment of the others. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and if you'll just indulge me, Christine, I have maybe just a final question and then Matt can bring us to the promised land after. But um We've talked a lot about sex without necessarily saying much about abortion. And we've talked about our secular neighbors and how they might perceive some of these arguments. And it makes me wonder if you're if you're reaching out to these audiences and you're trying to tell them something about Catholic social teaching or the Christian social ethic, uh, sexual ethic more broadly, they might say, oh, Christine, this is all well and good. But if I embrace Catholic social teaching, it means that I have to betray something very important to me on the question of reproductive rights and access to abortion. And I think for a growing number of young people in this country, particularly young women, this is a non-negotiable. And Catholic doctrine does seem to be, you know, um, you know, somewhat inflexible when it comes to at least parts of this debate. And um, with evangelicals, it wasn't always this way, and that's a broader conversation. But today, um, most evangelical traditions also take um, a pretty restrictive line. What What would you say to those people if they want part of what you're talking about, but they can't go as far as they might go because of the the abortion question, really? I think it's important to meet people where they are um, and, you know, moving them a couple steps down the path to a better sexual ethic, even if they don't sort of get all the way there to like embracing every Catholic teaching is still is better than, you know, not moving them at all um, for sure. And I actually, I do think that um, there is, I don't know if I would say growing awareness, but it's, it is interesting to think how um, sort of the Vatican maybe kind of got it right on the question of sort of contraception and abortion. Um, if you sort of look at how the availability of contraception has made it, you know, that much harder for, as we talked about before, um, women to say no, um, if it's made it that much harder or that much easier for sort of men to kind of skip out on their responsibilities um, because they assume that like, well, if if something happens, she'll get an abortion. It doesn't have to be my problem. It's on her. Or like she wasn't taking birth control. Like that's kind of her fault. Um, or like be very casual about something that is actually pretty serious. Um, I think people are... I think some people are like becoming a little bit more sort of awake to the downstream consequences that that those decisions might have. They weren't before. But pre-Roe v. Wade was also pretty dark in some other ways in terms of, you know, 
not having options, you know, forced pregnancies. Um, I mean, there there is also considerable social fallout to the previous mm-hmm. sexual regime, if you will. Oh, yeah. To be clear, I mean, I am not, I don't, I am not actually, I think the feminist movement was really important um, and like needed to happen. You know, I identify as a feminist. And I think that there were, um, yeah, a lot of sort of mores and problems that need to be faced and overturned. But sometimes you do have to wonder like how far the pendulum has swung yeah. and like the delta between what we thought movements, like the feminist movement and the sexual revolution would achieve versus what the delta between what we thought they'd achieve and where we actually ended up. And like kind of trying to figure out what happened in between. Yeah. Matt, final thoughts? Oh, man, I just I'm just so appreciative, Christina, of this. And I think, um, you know, as I as we said, this is our first uh, foray into sexual politics. And and there are some important distinctions between talking about sexuality and sexual practice and, of course, politics and, and political practice. But ultimately, it seems to me what we're reaching for here is is what do we owe one another um, and how are we to um, handle our neighbors and the the casualness with which we handle our neighbors sexually or politically um, has a real fallout for our cultural life together. And um, as we continue to, re- this has been a, a just sort of a wonderful sort of microcosm of the sorts of things that Shadi and I are wrestling with in terms of exploring what are ancient resources that are available to us, sort of wells that we might draw some water from um, in these in this fraught political and uh, sexual moment. And I think that your book, Christine, is just this beautiful example of um, engaging um, our popular culture in in a way that's generous, that's um, courageous, and um, and inviting to um, to all of our neighbors to ask, what is your sexual telos? What is it that you are seeking? And how is that working out? And how might we live together better? And so, Christina, I just wanted to say thank you so much for um, for jumping in this this conversation with us today. Amen. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll we'll definitely include a link uh, to Christine's book in the show notes. So make sure to check it out. Um, I was going to say it might actually change your life, and it and it might. But even if it doesn't, you'll definitely enjoy it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, if you want to read more of Christine's work, we'll also include a link to her Washington Post columns. Um, you should add that to your commentary um, op-ed column regimen. And thanks, Christine, but thanks to all of you for listening to Zealots at the Gate. Um, if you like what you heard, check out our other episodes and also check out our host and sponsor, Comment Magazine, at comment.org. We want to hear from you as well. You can find us on Twitter at Shadi Hamid, my name, and Matthew Kamink. Please note the Dutch spelling. Or you can use the hashtag ZealotsPod. Also, feel free to send us an email at zealots at comment.org. And don't forget to review us if you enjoyed this episode. Our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. 
Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazine. It's produced by the wonderful Ali Crummy. Audience strategy by the almost wonderful Matt Crummy. Uh, editorial direction by Miss Ann Snyder. I am Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. Ooh.